0: Thank you so much for joining us this week at Zion City Church with teachings from Pastor Andrew Rydell. We believe that God still speaks through his word and his people. So right now, lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit. We hope that this message encourages you, inspires you, and brings you into a deeper love and worship of Jesus. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a part of Zion City Church. we've made it. Some of us limping, crying, but we've made it. The crying was me. I'm not going to lie. No, it's been a a pretty uh, crazy and heavy season. I was telling my wife, I was like, I just can't wait to just tell stories about Jesus again. I was like, because this has been so much. But man, it's been great. And in this series, there has been a tension. I don't know if you've felt it. It's this tension between The life that Jesus calls us to live and the life that we experience, right? It's the life that that Jesus is inviting us into and the life we live in our day in and day out. And with that tension, we're aware of the gap between us and what Jesus calls us to. And when we have conversations about following Jesus, one thing is very clear The cost to follow him is high. I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew that a teacher of the law came up to Jesus and said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says that uh, foxes have places to sleep, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And another person comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I'll follow you as soon as I can bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. The cost of following Jesus is high. And Jesus pulls no punches in that. He he makes no exceptions to that. It is high. But the other thing we don't consider is the even greater cost to not follow Jesus. There's a cost to that as well, too. And the cost is in human lives. The world is chewing up and spitting out believers, day in and day out. Don't believe me? Sit with me through meetings in a week. And you'll see how the culture's vision of human sexuality is destroying the lives of people, day in and day out. Time would fail me to mention the kind of conversations I've had just since we started this series. Countless cups of coffee countless tears cried, countless Kleenex boxes of the sheer brokenness and ache of living according to the culture's script of, of sexuality. Many are tired, frustrated, worn, and weary from all of the broken promises and unmet expectations from this secular script. The sexual revolution has left behind in its path a trail of relational wreckage. We think we are being sold the good life, but we are only given disappointment and disillusionment. Dallas Willard says this. To depart from righteousness or right living with God and others is to choose a life of crushing burdens failures, and disappointments. A life caught in the toils of endless problems that are never solved. Here is the source of that unending soap opera that sometimes the horror show known as normal human life. In my conversations with many, this is the felt experience, crushing burdens, failures, and disappointments. Do you feel that this morning? Are you weary? Are you worn? Are you broken? Then, brothers and sisters, I come this morning bearing good news. I come bearing an invitation, and it is an invitation into rest. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke or teaching is easy and my burden Is lying. Every time I hear those words of Jesus, something within the core of my being cries out, longs for that kind of rest that he talks about, longs for the kind of experience of rest that he talks about, and I'm sure yours does the same. If most of us were honest with ourselves, we will have all kinds of feelings about this series. Maybe you've agreed with me in everything that I've said, friend, right? Maybe you've disagreed with everything that I said, friend, right? Whatever, whatever you find yourself. Um, each of us knows something in the deep core of our being, and it is this, that the way that most of us are living is not working, and the proof is in the pudding. We need something more, different, different something with more potency and potential. We need a new way to live. And Richard Foster puts this in beautiful language when he says, perhaps somewhere in the subterranean chambers of your life, you've heard the call to deeper, fuller living. You've become weary of frothy experiences and shallow teaching. And every now and then, you have caught glimpses Hints of something more than you have known. Inwardly, you long to launch out into the deep. As we have examined rather thoroughly, the secular script is failing. It is failing to produce the kind of fruit that it's promised. It promises freedom and joy and peace. And I ask you one question Are we happier than we've ever been before? Are we more fulfilled? Are we more at peace? As we look at the social landscape, do we say all of this progress has brought all the things as it's promised? Or do many of us feel like it's failed to live up to those expectations? And when called on that reality, they point to more progress. Oh, we just need to go further. It's just more education. It's just more this. It's just more this. And the metric keeps moving, and it fails to Deliver. In all of our progress, and all of our freedoms, we still find ourselves longing for something more. Now, if one was to pull away from all the little luxuries they use to drown themselves and distract themselves from the deep discontentment they feel, and they were just to sit with it for just a moment, not scroll through their phones, not turn on the TV, not blare the music, but if they were just to sit in the silence with their soul for a moment, it would become clear. The way that they are living is not working. And many who come to that place in an act of desperation give the church a try. And a lot of people leave here Feeling equally as discouraged as when they gave the world script a try because our current common framework around discipleship, namely sexuality, is failing also. Most people try to follow Jesus like they try to follow their New Year's resolutions. How are you doing on yours this year? Right. That was forgotten somewhere back in March. Right. And I've just reminded you. Oh, yeah, I was supposed to stop drinking Diet Coke this year. You're welcome. Reminded you. Right. But whatever it is. Right. We we treat following Jesus like New Year's resolutions. We think that we could follow him by sheer willpower. Right, that if we just watch the right video and kind of inspire ourselves enough and kind of just conjure something within and we listen to a good sermon and turn on worship music, you know, and and, and read a Bible verse or something, that somehow something will stir within us and then we will will ourselves into being and following Jesus. And that works till you walk out of the door of your house or potentially your bedroom, right, if you have kids, right? And then all of that zapped out of you, your willpower gone, and you become discouraged, You become defeated. You think there's no way that I could actually do this. G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting, but hear this, as it has been found difficult and left untried. And I think that this is where we find ourselves. A good way to think about this is imagine if next summer you decided you're gonna run a marathon. Now I know you're like, nah, not me. Okay, same. But just pretend with me for a moment that this is what you muster up within yourself that you want to you want to run a marathon. You came across a really like compelling, interesting documentary about the benefits of running or something, you know, and now you're convinced I'm gonna do it. So you do the stuff, you know. You go to the store, you buy the really expensive, nice running shoes that are supposed to like cushion your ankles in such a way, right? All the stuff. You do the thing. You get all the outfits, the headbands, the, the little running thing on your arm that can hold your phone while you run. You're doing it all. The reflective gear, a little lamp on your head in case you want to run it. You do it all, right? You watch the YouTube videos about proper running form and you're practicing in the mirror. You're like, this is how it's going to get done. You're visualizing yourself crossing the finish line at the marathon in record time, one hour and 27 minutes, right? Faster than all the people in the Olympics, right? You do it. You, you make it happen. You're in the shower cheering yourself, I can do this, right? You're imagining it, right? And then the next day, you wake up in the morning to run. And you say, we're going to do it. I'm going to run that marathon. And so you start running. And you give it all that you have, right? Every fiber in your being is pushing, and you're breathing, and you're going, and you're sweating, and it feels like you've been going for hours and hours. You've been working so hard. And you look at your new Apple Watch you just bought to track your distance, and you've gone exactly a mile. And you realize, I don't think I'm going to make it. But here's the stuff that you read about This moment where you have to dig down deep within and find it within yourself to push and you find whatever little bit of strength is in there and you channel it. And you keep running and you keep going until there's no possible way you could go any further. And so you collapse on the ground and you're laying there and you look at your watch thinking you may have done it and it's three miles. You've gone as far as you humanly can. And imagine I see you on the road and I pull up next to you in my vehicle and I roll down the window and there you are gasping for air And I just lean over you and I say, Why didn't you try harder? If you had the strength, you'd strangle me, right? You would would be furious. Try harder. I have nothing left to give. This is how we treat walking with Jesus. We treat walking with Jesus in the same way that it's about willpower, that it's about effort. And when we go as far as our willpower allows us, there we are, lying on the ground, gasping for air. And the church community comes over, why didn't you read more of your Bible? Why didn't you pray more? Not that those things are bad, but those things are missing the mark. You see, running a marathon for you is something that's not impossible. It may be for you today, but not entirely. The difference is not about trying, it's about training right? Let's do that same thing again. You watch the videos, you buy the watch, you get the shoes perfect, but that day one, you decide, today I'm running one mile. And it was hard, and it was difficult, but you did it. You made it happen. And the rest of that week, you're running one mile. A couple weeks pass, you go to two miles. A couple weeks pass, four miles. A couple weeks pass, ten miles. A couple weeks pass, and you just keep going up and up and up until one day, what was once impossible now becomes probable because of the way that you've trained. And this is the kind of analogy that Paul even uses. He says, run the race as if to win. Paul says that we are to train our bodies into Christlikeness. Discipleship to Jesus is not so much about trying as it is about training. Jesus says that we are to take his yoke or his teachings upon Uh, take our teachings upon him, and that the burden would be light. Most of us, that's not our felt experience. Why? Because we're trying to carry it rather than walking in the rhythms of grace along with Jesus. And so, this gets to the heart of what I really want to talk about today and what Jesus is really inviting us into when he says to come and follow me. Every day, your life is aimed in a particular direction, right? Because the decisions you make become your life. Everything you do becomes your life. You can have intentions for good things, but the decisions you make shape the outcome you ultimately live into, right? I could have the intention to you know, eat that thing of spinach that we bought at the grocery store this week, right? But if all my decisions are powdered donuts and whatever else, it's like, it doesn't matter what my intentions are, what's shaping the trajectory of my life are my actual decisions. And with every decision you make, whether intentional or unintentional, it shapes the lives that you ultimately live. Now, most of the time, the decisions you make, like 90% of the decisions that you make, aren't made with like great thought and conviction. They're made, most, they're made mostly out of the habits that we have formed and the culture that's around us. Most of the stuff that you do every single day is automated. Think about getting ready in the morning. You can do all of that without your brain even firing. You didn't, th- you didn't think deep and contemplatively about how you brushed your teeth this morning, right? You just did the thing. It was out of habit. That's most of your decisions are based on the habits that you've created for yourself, And the other small fraction is the ones that we think deeply about, like what job am I supposed to take or how are we supposed to handle this parenting challenge or whatever it is. But most of the decisions that we make are kind of made for us by the habits that we've cultivated. And in this series, we've entitled it God and Sex, but the tagline, sexual formation in the modern world. And at the core of our question for this series is this, who are we becoming by what we are doing? And this invitation to follow Jesus, hear me, is not an invitation to simply believe the right things, though I think it's important we believe the right things, but it's this, to take on his way of doing life. One of the more watershed moments for me was uh, rereading the Great Commission, right, which is the famous part of Matthew chapter 28 where he sends his disciples into all the world. And much has been made of going to all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Yes. But there's this line that we always forget where Jesus says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. He doesn't say teaching them all I commanded, but teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. This is the framework of discipleship. It's not just, here's what Jesus said, but rather, here's how we obey what Jesus said. What Dallas wooler has called practical theology. How do we actually live this stuff out? That it's not just beautiful ideas and some bookcase in our shelves, but it's embodied and lived in our everyday experiences. How do we move into that place? And the invitation to follow Jesus it's not just that some intellectual enterprise that you just think about the right things and boom, you're following him. But it is an embodied whole life pursuit of the life that Jesus has for him. That invitation to follow me is an invitation a rabbi would extend to somebody. It is an invitation into discipleship. Or a better word in our words is apprenticeship, right? So if you were going to be like an apprentice mechanic, you would come and and work with a mechanic to learn how to ultimately be a mechanic, right? That would be the ultimately, that's the end, telos, is that you would come and do that. So if you were to train under them, they would teach you everything you need to know about being a mechanic so that one day you would be that. So when a rabbi like Jesus would extend the invitation to come and follow me, it is an invitation into apprenticeship. He's saying, come and live life with me so you can live life like me. This is the call of discipleship. This is what Jesus calls us into. And so as you follow Jesus, what that literally means is you're going to do the things that Jesus did. You're going to be with him, and you're going to become like him ultimately. That's the the path of discipleship. John Mark Comer says this, to have the life of Jesus, we must take on the lifestyle of Jesus. So for us, following Jesus isn't something we think about. It's something we do with all of the decisions that we make, with the way that we posture our lives. Now, when most of us hear the teachings of Jesus and his calls to more and deeper, we think of it merely as an ideal, right? Like, ideally, that would be the case that we do that. Like, Jesus calls us to, to love our enemies. It's like, yes, in theory, you know, we should love our enemies, right? Or, or be compassionate and, and, and generous to the poor. And it's like, yes— when we can make it happen, when we got a little extra spare chain, you know, sure, we can be, you know, ideally, this would be the case, but God knows we're human, right? And we kind of give all these little caveats to the teachings of Jesus. But did Jesus think about his teachings that way as he called people towards himself? You know, if you can, if you can fit it into your already busy schedule, I know you're slammed, right? Can you just add this on top if possible? No, that is not the invitation of Jesus. Think about his call to the disciples. Drop your nets, come and follow me. Leave behind that which you hold so closely to, your identity, your calling, your career, and come and apprentice under me. Come and follow me. It is an invitation to partake of his life. And so when Jesus calls us to follow him, it's not to add his teachings to our ready full life, but it's to build our lives around his way of living. And an important part of that life is what Jesus taught about sexuality. As we have progressed in this series, it has become clear that much of our ideas around our sexuality, our talos or our purpose, and our practices have been deeply formed by the world around us. And over the last several weeks, I have sought to biopsy that cultural story and the surrounding narrative around our sexuality and contrast that with the teachings of Jesus. And here's what that has exposed. We need a sexual reformation. We need to be reformed. It may be costly, but it is the only way that it leads us to what Jesus calls life and life to the full. Dallas Willard again says this, the cost of discipleship, though it may take all we have, is small when compared to the lot of those who don't accept Christ's invitation to be a part of his company in the way of his life. If much of our understanding has been shaped by the culture we are surrounded by, then we need to be reformed by the teachings of Jesus. How do we become reformed? We need vision. We need power. And we need practices. First, we need vision. We need to know what direction is this ship moving. And the last several weeks have been that vision. And it all began with the theology of the body and the story our bodies tell. That is the telos, the purpose, the vision for which our lives are moving down. And wrestling through all these different avenues of singleness and marriage and 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 the the variety of other areas that we went and talked into about and, and how the way of Jesus contrasts those very areas. That's the vision. But the next thing that we need is power. Now the incredible thing about Jesus is he doesn't call us to follow him and say, You're on your own, good luck. But Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to come and indwell and fill the people who follow him. To empower them for the very mission that he calls them towards. And so the only way that we fulfill God's desires, the only way we can become reformed in our sexuality, is by the power of the Spirit. is by his empowering presence. Now I realize for most of you maybe who have been around the church or who have some familiarity with the church, empowering by the Spirit sounds very, like, mystical, you know? It's like, how does one be empowered by the Spirit? Like, is it only in certain songs we sing? Like, do we got to light some candles? Like, how does one become empowered? And as we talked about in our Holy Spirit series, empowering comes when you open your life up to the influence of the Spirit when you simply just invite him into your world and begin to allow him to influence your decisions, your actions, your thought patterns, and all the ways in which you live your life. But lastly, we need a set of practices, otherwise known as spiritual disciplines, that can help us resist the pull of the cultural tide and remain faithful to Jesus. When we examine the life of Jesus, There were a handful of things that he held near and dear to his heart that he did every day. And as Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us into those practices. He invites us into those disciplines, saying, this is how you follow me. Now, in the coming weeks and months, we will uh, nuance all of those very things out. But I want to examine here our teaching text this morning and kind of work through it that way. Paul begins by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, if you've read Romans, you know Romans up to this point The reason that therefore is there, as Paul has been expositing for 11 chapters, the marvelous mercy of God. Like it has just been 11 chapters of you being reminded that without Jesus, there is no hope. But because of Jesus' great compassion and mercy, we now have hope. And he's gone through... Cultural conversations about that. He's gone through the whole story of the scriptures and how this impacts both Jew and Gentile. Paul has kind of expounded all of those realities and comes to this place and saying, in light of all of those realities about who God is, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so for Paul, it is in light of who Jesus is that the only necessary response— The only appropriate response is an embodied one. It is a whole life dedicating itself to Jesus. Now, we think often that worship is some intellectual enterprise. It's the things that we think. It's thinking about good things. It's having the right theology. But instead, it is a posture towards God. Worship means bringing all of yourself, including your mind, to God and offering it to him. We often think that following Jesus is just about believing the right things, but it's far more than that. It is a call to embodied obedience to the way or teachings of Jesus. Henry Nouwen says this, you don't think your way into a new kind of living, you live your way into a new kind of thinking. Your body leads the way in terms of your discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus. If we want to experience the life that Jesus calls us into, it is not merely about the accumulation of information. It is not about memorizing verses and understanding doctrine. Those are good things. Do those things. However, it is about learning to live a life surrendered to the Lord Jesus. And in this conversation, we must have, in this conversation, one of the things that we must talk about is the reality of Jesus being Lord. Lord. And this is foundational when it comes to our sexuality. Because you may disagree with me, and that's fine, but when it comes to the authority of Jesus, either Jesus is Lord or he's not. That is an audacious claim that Jesus says that he is Lord and that the biblical authors say that he is Lord. And again, that sounds like super religious language, right? You don't show up to your house and be like, I am Lord of this place, right? You, you don't, you don't, we don't operate in that same way. But lordship um, is the, the idea of authority, power, influence. And Jesus says he is Lord over all. And so as we wrestle through our sexuality, and if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, that means Jesus is Lord even of your sexuality, and especially in light of your sexuality. Jesus is Lord over that. And so first, it's coming to the understanding that Jesus has an authority over our life. When we say and sing that Jesus is Lord, it's not some religious phrase to pay proper respect. It is a declaration of authority. Jesus, you have power and influence to dictate the way in which I live my life. To say that Jesus is Lord over your life is to say that you submit to his care and his wisdom. Now, people get weary around this language because it sounds like, it sounds tyrannical to talk in that way. But hear me in this. You, if Jesus is not your Lord, you have a Lord somewhere else. It might be your career. It might be success. It might be relationships. You have a Lord somewhere that is calling all of your attention, all of your affection, all of your time, all of your resources to it, and you're bowing at its feet. It may not feel that way, but it's absolutely the case. And Jesus comes to liberate us from the tyranny of our own broken and bent desires and set us free to new life in him. You're always worshiping something. The question is not if you are, it's who you are worshiping. And for a follower of Jesus to submit unto his lordship and to be set free from the tyranny of our own sin and broken and bent desires to new life. And life into the full. And so to receive, to accept Jesus as Lord is to realize he has authority. He has say so. So at the end of the day, if you are a follower of Jesus, the thing that we all have to agree on is right here. What does Jesus say is true? You can feel one way about it. You can feel another way about it. We can all argue about it. But what does Jesus say is true? That is the supreme authority. We submit ourselves underneath that. Secondarily, this means that Jesus gets to define good and evil. Look, the scriptures confront us in our brokenness. There are things that you come across to in the scriptures where you're like, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. And that's fine that you feel that way, right? But Jesus determines what is good and evil, regardless of our perspective on it. When we think about the garden narrative, the text tells us that when Eve beheld the apple, or the fruit rather, it's always the apple. I don't know why I said it. The fruit, whatever this mystery fruit is. Could have been a mango. We're not sure. But whatever the fruit was, right, when she beheld it, that it was desirable and good to eat. From her perspective, it looked good. Though God said it was bad, she said we're defining this as good. And before everyone's like, yeah, e, what's the problem? Adam was right behind her. Yeah, go. Right? He was cheering her right on. That's what the text says, that he was right there and watched it all unfold. They both decided to define good and evil on their own terms. Now, before we treat Genesis as like some archaic thing, whatever, we do the very same thing today. Calling things good that are actually evil and break the heart of God. We commit the same sin in the garden that they did almost every single day. And so what the scriptures do is they're referred to as a mirror because they show us what we actually look like. They confront us in who we are. You may wake up in the morning thinking you look great, right? And then you get a walk by of that mirror, and you look, and you scare yourself. You know what I'm talking about? And you, like, get mad at the people in your house. How did you let me walk around like this all morning, right? It wasn't until you see. Because the mirror exposes what actually is. You could feel some type of way about how you look, but the mirror exposes that reality. It also says of the scriptures that it is a a sword so sharp it can cut between the bone and the marrow. It is specific. It is accurate. And it exposes things in our heart. And so when you're confronted with a text that you don't like or a scripture that's, you know, I don't necessarily agree with that, it's not like you can reason it out with God. He's exposing what is. And he's defining what is good and what is evil. And if you claim to follow him, it's to submit to that authority. It's that even though I don't see it that way, even though I I don't understand it in that same way, saying that you are Lord means I trust that you know what ultimately is good. You see, when Adam and Eve beheld the fruit, they had no idea of the destruction it would bring, but God did. And it's about trusting his perspective, trusting that he has an ability to see things that you don't see. And so the only appropriate response to the lordship of Jesus is surrender. It's with open hands and an open heart to say, I don't know, but I know that you do. Show me. Teach me. Now, if you're feeling conflicted about this, how has being your own Lord served you so far? How is it working out? Honestly, yeah, when you're free from, like, Netflix and eating out with friends and coffee, and you just get alone with yourself for just a moment, most often you are afraid to sit with the stillness and the silence because you're afraid of what might be exposed, that you are deeply discontented, disillusioned, and disheartened about the current state of your life. How is being your own Lord working? Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because we are freed from the pressure of being our own lord and we receive his teaching and suddenly the weight is off our shoulders and he gets to define what is good and evil we surrender to it now i want to have a real honest pastoral conversation about this surrender surrender is not a one-time event Right? It's not like when you were just like 16, you're like, I surrender, and then boom, your whole life is surrendered, and you just follow Jesus that way. No. Every day is a re-up on your surrender. Jesus says that we are to take up our cross, not biannually, not every decade, not when it's back when never yeah. Daily take up our cross. Daily re-surrendering to the reality that Jesus is Lord. But here's what we often do. We surrender. And then just when we don't like things, we pick it back up, right? It's like, Jesus, you can have this whole situation and then things get complicated. I'll take it from here, thank you very much. Right, it's like we, we do that all the time. It's like, oh, Jesus, we surrender our kids to you, Lord. They're yours or whatever. And then difficult parenting situations. I'll take this. Don't do that. Don't do here. Go there or whatever, right? It's like we want control again. Lord, I surrender my career before you until a career decision comes up. I'll take that back up. I'll reason to my mind and do a pros and cons list and really figure these things out, right? Whatever it is, whatever avenue and venue of life, we do that. We put it down, and then we pick it back up. So every day is the conscious decision to surrender again. I surrender my life to you all in all of its totality. And every fiber and every moment and all of my being, I surrender to you again because you're worthy. You know what's good and what's evil, and you are Lord. This embodied surrender is how we become holy. Paul says that as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, it is holy and pleasing to God. Again, holy is like a really religious word, all that it means is that you are set apart. You are different, different from the, from the frameworks and structures of the world. You are set apart. It has an aspect to moral purity to it, but its essence is that you are altogether different. And as you surrender your life to Jesus, he begins to transform you into his own image that you are set apart and different. And he says that that is pleasing to God. And it's not because God is like some egomaniac who needs his ego stroked for all these people to serve him. It's because in love, he made us with a purpose and a telos. And when we fail to live into that reality, it breaks his heart. But when we step into our redemptive potential, his heart is overfilled with joy because we're living as we were intended to live. It's pleasing to him because he's a good dad who loves his kids and longs for them to live into the reality he has for them but Paul goes on and he says do not conform to the pattern of this world you don't realize the effect that the place that you live has on you until you travel right Um, all of us don't think that we have accents here in New Mexico until you travel right and you have to explain some of the words that you say Uh, recently we were in uh, San Francisco uh, with some friends. Oh, sorry. Santa Monica, Santa Monica with some friends and something funny happened and in a very New Mexican way I said chale and my friends are what and, I, and he speaks Spanish and I was like chale, bro And he's like, What does that mean? So then we had like some long conversation about chale and he left He's all chale. He kept saying as he was walking away But we don't realize like how that stuff just kind of like flows out of us, right? Or you go somewhere and like we love like heat in our food here, and you just all, like it tastes bland. You're like, you got some Tabasco or something? you know. It's like we don't realize that our palates are even formed by the places where everything's with garlic salt. You know, you're just throwing it on everything, Wh- whatever it is. We have these ways in which we don't even realize how the place around us has affected, because we just drift towards that, right? And those things are silly, and none of those things are bad, right? But they have this influence on us, and we're unaware of it. Paul says we must be intentional about how we are being formed by not conforming to the patterns of this world, to the habits, to the way of life that is currently presented before us, to not be conformed in those ways. And so whether you realize it or not, right now you are being formed. Formation is not a Christian thing. It's a human thing. We all are a disciple of something or someone. The question is, who is it forming you to be, and who is it that you are being formed into? The current around us pulls us in the direction of the strongest story, and we will drift in the direction of the culture around us. So we must be intentional about our formation. We must actively resist the pull around us that leads us away From Jesus. And we are shaped primarily by four things our habits, the stories we believe, our relationships, and our environment. Our habits, the stories we believe, the relationships we have, and our environments. And I've touched on the three of those, but I want to touch on one. And it's this the relationships you have. You will become like those you run with. Those you spend the most time with, those who you have surrounded in your life, you will become like them. Who do you have surrounding you? Who has the most influence around you in your life? You will be like them. And all my conversations around formation, that's one of the first places that we begin. When someone's made a mess of their life, the first question I ask is, who have you been listening to? Well, you know, my friend said, and there it is, right? There it is. Our habits, the stories we believe, the relationships in our environment deeply form this. And so, running out of time, really trying to not make this a long one, so hang in there with me. But (laughs) the invitation then, Paul says, is to be transformed. To be transformed in the renewing of your minds. And I want to get really practical here. What are ways in which we, what are things that we can do in practice that would help us Receive God's gift of sexuality as he's he's laid it out and as we've laid out in this series. First is just to name the story that you believe, just to put language to it. What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about my body? What do I believe about sexuality? What do I believe about same-sex attraction? What do I believe about all of these realities? What do I believe about these things? And just name it. Put language to it. And in some areas, you'll see alignment with the way of Jesus. And in other ways, you'll see a chasm. But just to name the stories you believe. Next is to name the history that you have. How have I, what are the, how have the things that I've done contributed to or gone against the way of Jesus? What are manners in which I lived that are contrary to what Jesus says is the good life? And to name our history, to confess it say, these are the things that I've done. And lastly, is to confess or name the place that you find yourself in. Like, no hype, no over-spiritualizing, no trying to, like, make yourself better than you are. Be honest. Where are you actually at? And confess that. I'm nowhere near where I should be, right? I don't believe any of that. Help me, Lord. Honestly name where you actually are. And that is the first step in moving in the right direction. But we confess. We confess the areas where Jesus isn't Lord of our lives, and then we resurrender those areas. The next thing I want to call us to is contemplation or to contemplate as a community. A lot of what we do is just formed by our habits, so we must think about our habits and decisions very carefully because they form the lives that we ultimately live. And so first... I want you to think about the story you believe about your own sexuality and how it's influenced you. Think about what you believe to be true and how that belief has shaped the decisions that you've made and that brought you to where you ultimately are today. You'll see the path. You'll see the way that that has gone. Next is to think about the relationships around you and how they influence you. Is my closest circle pushing me towards Jesus or pulling me away? That's an honest and serious thing that you must contemplate and think through. Next is about the habits that you currently have. If the first thing you do in the morning is roll over and reach your over for your phone, that has an influence on you. The first app you open, whether it be the news app or Instagram or whatever, has an influence on you. And the first few moments of the day is the first thing to fill your mind is... What? Yeah. But for those who aren't in that place, right, it is something else, it would be that. It would be the news, it would be social media, it would be whatever. And I want to specifically, as a quick caveat, say we need to be really thinking through the way technology is forming and shaping us, because it is. And I want to confess something. Um. I had an Apple Watch for a long time, and I loved it, and I still use it when I work out, but I had it on me all the time. And it would, like, ping, and instinctively, I would look at it. Instinctively, I wouldn't even think about it. And one time, Celeste and I are in a disagreement, and it pings, and I don't even think about it. You're all judging me. Okay, hold on, right? But I don't even think about it but I just glance at it, and it was like time to breathe. It's like, yeah, a good one, right? But I look at it, and she's like, you can't even give me your undivided attention, and it was at that moment that I realized this thing has been forming me. It's like I'm here, the, and it's not that I wasn't engaged in the meaningful conversation, but in that moment, with my bride, with my wife, with the woman I love the most in this world, my attention was pulled away for what? What? the Bleacher Report app, right, or whatever it is, some sporting notification, a reminder to breathe. I'm doing that just fine. Thank you, Apple Watch, right? And so I put it away. I realized how it was forming and shaping me. And it it may, you might be like, it's a little dramatic. Maybe, but it mattered to me. I wasn't able to be present with the people that I love the most. We need to be rethinking our relationship with tech. How is it forming and shaping us as families? as individuals, as people. A word to you parents. We got limited time with our kiddos. Limited time. Special, precious time. How is tech pulling us away from that? It's hard now to not go to a restaurant and see everybody on their phone. And this is not like some old man with his cane. These kids don't know about the. But it's true. They're longing for connection and don't realize the connection they're longing for is sitting across from them at the table. And it's not just you young whippersnappers. It's everybody. I see 80-year-olds on Facebook or trying to get on Facebook, right, at the table when their grandkids are sitting across from them at the table. We must rethink about how tech is forming that and how tech is forming us in terms of our sexuality. What things are we constantly being exposed to? Would you be comfortable in this room watch what you've watched on TV right here on this screen this week? If not, why? Just why? No judgment, no condemnation, just why? Well, it would be inappropriate. So if it's inappropriate, and you wouldn't want anyone watching you, you watching that here, why are you watching it to begin with? I'm not here to answer questions, I'm just here to ask them, right? You do with what you want with those, but really, what do you do with that? Something to really consider and weigh. I want us to also think about the environments that we are, are, are in and how they influence us. Maybe it's the workplace. Maybe it's the barbershop. Maybe it's whatever. And how they form and shape you to be who you are by the environments you simply place yourself in. And lastly, and I'm really running out of time, but is this other one. Is to cultivate. So we confess the areas that we've gone wrong. We, c- we contemplate or consider our lives. And lastly, we cultivate we put into practice these things and so a question you need to ask yourself is this what are things I need to get out of my life what are things I just need out and right now something's probably been brought to mind and you're instantly making justifications for why that can't be the case you're like yeah but I need it I use it so much or yeah but they're important to whatever it is instantly you start making justifications and that's how you know we're getting to the heart of something here what is something I need out of my life What is something I need in my life? What is a habit, a discipline, a practice I need to be bringing into my life? Maybe, and just maybe, it's starting your first few moments, not groggy-eyed reaching for the phone, but instead to spend a few moments in silence in the morning. Not rushing to turn on the TV or the music or the podcast or whatever, but just sitting in a few moments in silence and praying a simple prayer like, Come Holy Spirit. And watch how that just shifts the trajectory of your day, your week, your month, your year, that simple practice. These small incremental changes making the huge difference. Lastly, what boundaries do I need to set up to safeguard my life? In this series, I believe that the spirit is exposing lines and areas that we're crossing that are bringing destruction and havoc in our lives and it's time to set up boundaries. Now, this isn't, oh, this is legalism. No, man, this is just wisdom. The scriptures say the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. If you know going to a place, doing a thing, having this, this device, whatever, is hurting your apprenticeship to Jesus, get it out of your life. Draw the boundary, whatever that looks like for you. And whatever relationship that is, draw the boundaries and draw them firm. And you could think that's legalist or whatever. Think that. But I'd much rather, you know, live faithfully to Jesus and expose myself to things that just ruin my soul. And the next one, sorry, this is like super somber. Next one is going to be a little bit more uplifting. It's cultivating delight. So as the church, we need to have like the, mo- the, the best culture to be in. When people think about following Jesus, it's, like, so serious and somber. It's like, oh, we have to do things. It's like, dude, following Jesus is joyful, right? Sexuality in Jesus brings joy. It is joyful, right? And so when we, like, cast a vision of singleness that's like, well, you know, sometimes somebody doesn't find somebody. It's like, my gosh, and of course no one wants to sing, be single. When we cast a beautiful, compelling vision about living in singleness for the kingdom of God, it awakens those realities and calls people to joy. But there's an other side of that responsibility, that as a community, we celebrate that reality just the same as we'd celebrate somebody getting married or a family. We celebrate and cultivate singleness in that same way. And so we have to have a different vision of dating, of relationships, of our relationship to tech, all of these different things. We have to have a different vision of that so we become different kinds of people. And we need to celebrate that as a community and not view it as like a yoke that's a burden but instead as a gate that opens up the door for freedom in our lives. And the Christian community should be the community of the most joy. The scriptures tell us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so do you need help in your wrestle through these hard conversations about sexuality? It's not found in sincerity. It's not found in seriousness. It's found in joy. The way you stay faithful to Jesus is not taking it really seriously, but it's instead allowing Jesus to be your joy instead. Because as you behold him, those other things begin to fade in the background. You cultivate joy in your relationship with him. And then as a community, we be a community of celebration as people live in the reality of the kingdom. And that's our time for today. But at Zion, we'd want to be a people who just hear the word and do nothing. We want to be a people who respond. <sighs> Sophie would just join me in standing. And if you would, would you just, if you're able, put your hands out and just a posture to receive from God this morning? And this is just a sign, it's not there's nothing special. It's not you don't get a special channel to heaven. This is just you saying, God, I'm open to receive from you today. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Our response is gonna look a little different this morning. In that, um if you come forward, we're not gonna ask you questions or interview you. We just wanna stand next to the very things that God is doing in your life. And so if you if you choose to respond, and I hope you do, just know that um you won't have to explain yourself or answer the questions, or whatever. Someone's just gonna come and I'm just gonna pray for you. And just affirm the things that God's already doing in you. But I but I have a sense of a couple things. We were praying for you guys this morning. And as a leadership team, we have been praying for you, and I've been praying for you this morning. And and, and I had a sense of a couple things. Um, first, I I have a sense this morning that there's people in the room, namely married couples, and the vision that I the, the the picture I saw in my mind was like a wedding photo being torn apart, but at the very bottom, it's still being held together. And that's how you guys feel right now as a married couple. You feel like you're barely holding on together. You're on the last leg, the last bit. And you need God to strengthen your marriage. You need God to bind it up again. And in in my mind, there was specifically something about maybe even feeling abandoned in the marriage. And so, if if that resonates with you, all I'm going to ask you to do is just come forward. And there's nothing special about up here. There's no, like, holy dust on the ground or something that you get, something extra. But this is just an embodied way of saying... I'm responding to God and I want to respond to the work that he's doing in me because he sees me. Because we believe this that when God speaks it's because he wants to act. He wants to do something. Um I was also struck this morning with just an overwhelming sense of just loneliness in somebody. That you just feel alone, that you feel unseen, that you feel misunderstood. And that there was a part of you that was hoping to walk in this community this morning and feel seen and feel understood even for just a moment. And the word of the Lord for you today is that he sees you. He understands you because he made you and that you are not alone. If that resonates with you, I just want to ask you to come forward and receive that word as well. The last thing that I just kind of feel in my heart is um, for parents that right now are, are, are wrestling through what it looks like for your kids and that you just desire wisdom. That you just, you want to know, God, how do I do this thing? At times you feel like a kid still, so you're like, how on earth am I supposed to raise kids to? And you just, you long for wisdom and you've come in this morning longing for wisdom, for direction in terms of parenting. And so uh, the worship team is going to play, and as they do, if this is you. I'm going to ask you just to come in to respond and just say that. And again, you're not going to have to explain yourself. You're not going to have to tell the whole story. Just come up, and someone's going to put their hand on your shoulder, and they're just going to pray for you. And I want to pastor us into risk. God has something beautiful this morning, and if any part of this, any part of this is resonating with you, respond. And we just want to affirm the work that God is already doing in you. So there's no pressure. There's no hype. We're not going to hype anything up because he's already here. We just want to respond. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. To see all the new content coming from Zion City, follow us on Instagram or like us on Facebook. And to partner with us financially, visit our website at zioncitychurch.net.